Amen. Amen. I know we can do this the whole service, but let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you uh, this morning for another Lord's Day that we can worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Truly, he is the reason why we are here today. We gather for his namesake. We gather to celebrate him, to adore him, uh, to make him known. Lord, we desperately need to hear a word from you. We don't need to hear a word from a man, but we need to hear a word from you. So God, would you speak to us today from your word? Would you uh, deal with our hearts? Would you teach us? Would you instruct us? Would you uh, correct us? And Lord, where is necessary and needful, would you, uh, would you reprove us? Father, we love you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A blockbuster movie called Signs came out in the year of 2002. It was an American science fiction thriller, horror film, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and also produced by Shyamalan. And it was about a former Episcopal priest, Graham Hess, who was played by Mel Gibson. They were living in a rural farm in Dolestown, Pennsylvania, with his asthmatic preteen son, Morgan, and his young, da young daughter, Bo. Graham's younger brother, Mario, was a failed minor league baseball player, and he came to help uh, his brother uh, because of the tragic death of his wife, Colleen, just six months earlier. Graham abandoned the church in the aftermath of the incident. When all of a sudden, large crop circles appeared in the Hess cornfield. They were initially uh, attributed to vandals. However, they began to get word that crop circles were beginning to appear globally. And lights from invisible objects hovered over many of Earth's cities. To the family's continued terror, news footage emerges of what appears to not hear, uh, appears to be alien creatures. The crop circles were signs of an intimate alien attack on Earth. Now, 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 kids, don't be scared. I am not here today, this morning, to report of an imminent alien attack in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. But I am here today to talk about signs. That is to say, a sign for all times. Now, before I get into it this morning, beloved, uh, I know that today perhaps there are people here today who perhaps are skeptics or doubters or seekers, and you are looking for a sign, you're looking for some reason to believe uh, that Jesus Christ is what Christians historically have called him to be, that is, the Lord of glory, the King of kings. I'm glad you're here this morning, and I want to say this message is for you. Or perhaps you're here today and you desperately need a word from God. You need to hear that God really does care for you, even though he knows all your hidden sins. He knows all your 
deep fears. He knows all your failures. We're glad you're here as well. This message is for you. Now, 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 dear ones, the big idea of our text this morning comes in the form of a warning, and it is this. Be careful to see the final sign and respond rightly to its truth. Can I say that again? Say amen. We're going to say amen a lot this morning, so get ready. Be careful to see the final sign and respond to it rightly. Now, the question I want us to think about for the remainder of our time this morning is this. Why? Why should we be careful to see the final sign and rightly respond to its truth? I'm glad you asked. Our text gives us three reasons why we should be careful to see the final sign and respond rightly to its truth. The first one is found in verses 29 and 30 and verse 32. So if you will look there with me at this time. And the first one is this, if you're taking notes. The final sign points to a greater prophet. The final sign points to a greater prophet. Now in verse 29, as uh, Brother Walter shared with us last week, uh, Jesus is about to answer now a question that was brought to him uh, in last week's message that, that, that Brother Walter brought out. So if you would look down quickly at verse 16 of Luke chapter 11. And in verse 16, we are told, Luke tells us, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And then notice what Luke t says here. He says, but he, that is Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them. So they were here asking him for a sign. And Jesus said in verse 29, uh, notice the, Luke says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say. That's an interesting note for, for my Bible geeks this morning. Uh, the word here for increasing, many commentators believe, could, could extend to the, uh, to the number of thousands. Uh, it got to the point where Jesus was the show of shows, and people came from all over Palestine, all over Galilee, Jerusalem, and Judea to see what next sign, what next miracle Jesus was going to do. And they were increasing, and as Jesus was looking and seeing this happen, he began to say, the scripture says, this generation is an evil generation. Now, uh, I've never read the book, but I don't think this is a good way to win friends. Uh, but uh, <laughs> this is what he said. Can you imagine that? You have the, these hordes of people gathering around, literally hanging on the very words of Jesus and literally anticipating the very next miracle he was going to do. And Jesus looked up at him and he says, you are evil. This generation is an evil generation. Now, I'm a preacher, so can I preach a little bit here? Thank you. This can be said also of our generation, can it? We're still killing babies in their mother's wombs and calling it choice. 
while protecting the spotted owl from distinction. This is an evil generation. Couples are forsaking the notion of marriage and exchanging it for cohabitation, and they're doing it in the thousands, dear ones, effectively snubbing our nose at the God of the Bible who gives us marriage as a good gift. This is an evil generation. Hatred continues to boil over and spill into our urban cities and streets and homes, taking the lives of the young and the old. And for what? For what, I ask you? This culture is increasingly calling right wrong and wrong right. This is an evil generation. I think Jesus knew what he was talking about as he looked with his piercing, omniscient eyes who knew all things into the lives, into the hearts, into the stony hearts of those who were about to ask him for another time, give us another show. Now, you may ask me the question, preacher, why would Jesus be so forward? Why would Jesus be so what some probably would even call in our culture today harsh? It may even seem unloving, but sometimes the strongest words is the most loving words. Isn't it? When we need it. Jesus knew exactly what this generation needed. They didn't need another entertainment. They didn't need another show. What they needed was the truth. Now, let me suggest a few things, and then we'll move on, because the clock is ticking. I see it, Donnie. <laughs> but why? Why would he, he call them an evil generation? Well, look at the text. He says here, for they, they, they seek another sign, literally another sign. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you one except the final one. The final sign. Why, Jesus? Why? Why would you take this position? Uh, let, me, let, me, let me suggest two reasons. First of all, we saw it in verse 16. They were testing Jesus. Some commentators use that word test, uh, which is a strong word in the Greek, and it carries the idea of taunting Jesus. They were not looking for truth. They were not looking for a, a, a reason to believe in Jesus. No, no, no. No, my friend. They were looking to test Jesus. They wanted to taunt him. They wanted to play with him. Jesus was not having it. He says, you're an evil generation. In fact, the word evil is the word panerea in the Greek, and it carries the, the same word that Jesus used primarily for the evil one himself, that prince of darkness. He calls him the paneros the evil one, the rebel of rebels. He says, this generation is like Satan. They're evil. And number two, I want to also suggest that not only they weren't to taunt Jesus, but they were blind. I mean, can you imagine, dear ones, they could not see the very light that was everywhere because of their unbelief. You say, well, what do you mean, preacher? He healed on a regular basis. He gave sight to the blind, did he not? 
He unstopped the ears of the deaf. He untangled the, the tongue of the dumb. He even raised the dead. There was light all around this generation, but they couldn't see it because they were blind because of their unbelief. This was an evil generation. So Jesus says, I've got one, the final sign. Look at the text, if you will, again. Look at what he says at the latter part of verse 29, uh, beginning at verse 23. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And what in the world is Jesus talking about here? First of all, notice Jesus is a man of the word, isn't he? He's going to pull several things from the Old Testament scriptures, and this is one of them. He pulls from Jonah. And he says, just as Jonah was a sign to the people of Nimrod. Now, many commentators, specifically those recently, have suggested several ones, but I think the scriptures can help us with this. In Matthew chapter 12, don't write it down because I'll be gone by the time you get there. But in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, uh, the, the Matthew records, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is the final sign, preacher? The sign, the final sign is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Muhammad did not rise again. Buddha did not rise again. Jim Jones did not rise again. Jesus rose again from the grave. Can somebody in here say amen this morning? Woo, y'all sound like a black church in here. Watch out. Jesus gave them the final sign. Final in the sense of the greatest of all signs, his bodily resurrection. No other teacher, no other prophet, no other priest ever rose again from the grave. Amen. <laughs> but Jesus, the final sign. Now, now notice what else he says here in the text as we go. I want you to look over, not at verse 30, but look at verse 32. Now, now, at this time, Jesus is going to use the picture of a courtroom. And he's going to pull from the, from the revelation of the Old Testament two narratives. The first narrative is the narrative of the queen. Here, Luke calls it the queen of the, of the south. And then the second narrative, he goes back to Nineveh, and he calls these the men of Nineveh. He doesn't give a name as to who he's referring to, but he calls them the men of Nineveh. And he's going to use both of these as, 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 as judges over this generation. Now, by the way, this generation, Jesus is referring to the people, his own people, who have at this point publicly rejected the Messiah. And so the tone of this text, in fact, many of the uh, commentators will bring out that the tone of the rest of the book of Luke, for the most, most part, is that of judgment, that of condemnation. And the only difference is when those who come with the sincere, soft heart for Messiah. But for the most part, the tone has radically changed at this point in the gospel of Luke here. 
Look at verse 32. So uh, I know Queen of Sheba is first, but, but, but bear with me for just a moment. There's a reason why I'm doing this. Look at verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for, this is a reason caused, for this reason they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. There are three things that Jesus brings out in both of these stories. And by the way, beloved, notice also that both of the ones that Jesus picks are Gentiles. That is very important because the Jews saw the Gentiles as what? Heathens. They saw the Gentiles as what? Dogs. They didn't see them as equals. And so Jesus takes both of these and he used them as a means of judging his own people. Now watch. Watch what he says real quick. We're going to walk through this real quick because my time is moving. He said, first of all, the judge over this generation, look at, look at verse uh, 32, men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. Notice the definite article here, the article here, the judgment. Many of the commentators rightly, I believe, bring out that this is not just any judgment, but this is what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. You say, well, where is that at, preacher? It's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. But for the sake of time, I can't go there. But just suffice it to say, you don't want to be at this judgment. This is a judgment only for those who had rejected Christ, who had rejected the Messiah. And the only thing that really matters at this point is how much they will suffer for eternal in the place called the second death. And so he says, he says, he says, the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The word condemn literally means a cause to condemn. Now, what is the cause to, to condemn, preacher? Well, they said because they, that is the men of Nineveh, as wicked and as evil as they were, repented. Metanoia. They changed their minds that resulted in a change of lifestyle. They turned from their wickedness, their evil way of living, their rebellion against the God of creation, and they turned and embraced the truth about Jehovah and followed him. Their own changes becomes judgment for this generation, this people of Israel. And yet notice the last part of verse 32, and behold, something greater then Jonah is here. Now, if you have an NIV, NIV says someone greater than Jonah is here. Literally, Luke uses, can I be a little technical here for just a moment? Luke uses the word pleon, which is a neuter term uh, of the word greater. So, so the idea is not so much a comparison and contrast between Jonah and Jesus, but it's connecting between the ministry of Jonah and the ministry of Jesus. That is the greater prophet. Are you with me? Say amen. Here he is emphasizing his ministry of prophecy. And he is saying, yeah, Jonah was a great prophet, but there's one greater here. He is one greater here. Can I brag about Jesus for just a moment here? Listen, Jonah preached the word to Nineveh. Jesus is the word to all generations. Can I get an amen? Jonah reluctantly preached salvation to Nineveh. Jesus is salvation to all who would believe. Can I get an amen? 
Jonah hated Nineveh, for he knew how wicked they were. But listen to this, beloved. Listen, if you're listening, say amen. amen. But Jesus loves us even though he knows everything about us. Jesus is the greater prophet. Here's the good news of the gospel this morning. Then I need to move on. I need to move. This train has got to go. You can know Jesus, the greater prophet, if you are willing to repent and believe in the final sign. So the final sign points to a greater prophet. And second, the final sign points to a greater king, a greater king. Look up with me, if you will, real quickly at verse 31. Now we're introduced to the queen of the south. Jesus brings our minds to this, this, this interesting queen that comes literally in the Greek, for far away, just to hear the wisdom of Solomon, the scripture says. Look at the text, if you will, beginning at verse, uh, verse, uh, 30, verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation. Now, who is the queen of the south? The, the word south literally is the word that points to the queen of Sheba, which is today is Yemen, and she came all the way from what, what we call today Yemen to hear the wisdom that came out of the mouth of Solomon. But when she came to hear what Solomon taught and said and saw the immensity of his wealth, she became enamorated not so much with Solomon, but, but with Solomon's God. We see this in 1 Kings 10, 1, and 2 Chronicles 9, 1 as well. Don't turn there. I'm just referring to them. But the point is, is that she became enamored. She became overwhelmed with this God who gave this king the, these abilities. And she began to praise that king. Some commentators believe that she became a believer in Christ. This is interesting. Because as we think about this, Notice the text says, but there's something greater than King Solomon. And I love this because, again, we're brought to the idea of the comparison contrast, not so much of his prof prophecy, a ministry of prophecy now, but his office of kingship. Are y'all with me? Jesus is the greater king. And Jesus says, there's a greater king in your midst. Can I brag a little bit more on Jesus for just a moment here? Listen, first of all, Jesus is the wealthier king. Psalms 50, verses 10 through 12. Listen to this. For every beast of the forest is mine's, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness is mine. Question, class. Who created all of creation? One word, Jesus, amen? John chapter one, verse three, the Bible tells us, John tells us that he created all things. There was not anything that was not made that he didn't make. Jesus made it all. He is the wealthier king, but notice also he is the wiser king. Paul in both uh, 1 Corinthians 24 and verse 30 state that Christ 
is the wisdom of God. Not only is Christ full of wisdom, but the very essence of who he is. He is the wisdom of God to all who follow Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3 states, and I quote, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the wiser king. But you know what else, friend? Jesus is the sovereign king. Amen? Listen to this word in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. John writes about the one who is faithful and true, riding on a white horse. And John states, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, listen to this, King of kings, Lord of lords. There is no one greater than him. He is the wealthier king, and Jesus is the wiser king. And I've got good news for you this morning. You can be a citizen of the kingdom of the greater king. And perhaps you're here today, and you're not a Christian. You haven't committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're here today, and you're hearing the message today, and perhaps the Holy Spirit of God is working in your heart, is staring in your soul. Your mind is thinking about the possibilities here. I want to suggest that you don't leave this room today without talking with someone about how to become a citizen of the kingdom of the king. But I want another. Can I bring this to a, even closer here this, this morning? Uh, you can help others become citizens of the kingdom of the greater king. Amen? You can do this by, by, by jumping on board, if you will, uh, helping us to, to reach the nations in Southeast Raleigh. I know this is my selfish advertisement for Missio Day Church of Raleigh, but stick with me for just a second. Here is my challenge to everyone. I want to challenge every elder and every member of IDC and every visitor here today, don't just pray or think about whether you and your family could come with us to Southeast Raleigh. Instead, I challenge you to pray and think about why you should stay and make sure that your reasons for staying are Christ-centered and not me-centered or comfort-centered. And so the final sign points to a greater prophet and a greater king, and finally the final sign points to a greater decision. Now, here in our text in verses 30 through 36, these are known as the light sayings. For many, uh, there is an argument that this is not connected to what we just uh, read in the text, but I, I, I differ from that. There are other commentators who believe it is. Because you see, in this text, Jesus is now drawing the rope. He's now, he's now bringing the, 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 these, this generation to a point of decision as to who they think Jesus is is. Are you with me saying that? These are Hebraic colloquialisms. These are common sayings that the Hebrews would have have understood because the whole idea, the light metaphor is found throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there are three three light sayings real quick that I want to suggest to you and then we'll be through for this morning. The first of all, Jesus talked about the purpose of the lamp. Look at verse 33. The purpose of the lamp. Jesus says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the lamp. So Jesus here now is now sharing something that is common but very important here, and that is the purpose of the lamp. To give sight. To give 
illumination. The presence of the light is for those to see what's going on around them. Beloved, the idea here that Jesus is developing now is not so much uh, our being able to be a light to the world, but he is the light of the world. What Jesus is saying to them is this, I'm here. I am the light. See me or beware. So he says, the purpose of the light, I'm here. And by the way, by, by way of, this is a very important point, but we need to move on. Notice the phrase, so that those who enter may see the light. This is a common phrase. Uh, you, we found it in Luke 8 when Pastor Tony was preaching on that passage. We, we, we will find it in Luke chapter 18. It was a picture of those who entered into the kingdom of God. Those who enter that they might see the light. Then verse 34, gone from the purpose of the light to the light in you. And there are three things Jesus bring out here real quick. I can only just touch them real quick and then I'm done. But in verse 35, notice he says here, therefore, be careful. Be careful. Now, if you go to verse 34, he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. Now, what is he saying here? It is the eye that takes in the light, and your body is, 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 is the one that benefits. Now, here's the metaphor. What he's saying is that if you see your perception is correct, that is, if you notice who Jesus truly is, the light of the world, then everything else in your life will be affected by that revelation. And, and, and write this down, beloved. In effect, what he is saying is that I am the re revelation of God to the world. I am the revelation of God to the world. I am the light. And if you're willing to take that light in, then it will affect all of your life. He is the light. Jesus is the light. This is what he's pointing to. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the problem of sight is when people reject him. He says, when you reject me, he says that. Notice what he says here in verse, um, the latter part of verse 34. He says, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. That is to say, when you reject the light, there's only one other reality, and that is darkness. So, here's the warning. This is the main thought, the thesis of the whole passage. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. The word careful is the word scapel, from which we get our English word scope, microscope, telescope. It's the idea of give great attention to, look carefully to, lest the light in you be darkness. The idea here is of the uh, critical importance of seeing who Jesus is because Jesus says if you don't really understand that I am the light, there is no other way. Another way of putting it, friends, is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come from the Father except through him. And if you get that wrong, you got it all wrong. 
And so he concludes with verse uh, 36 here. Notice he says in the conditional statement, if then you hold your, your whole body, he uses these real holistic words now, whole body is full of light, having no part dark. He says, hey, if you get this right, if you begin to place your life under the Lord Jesus Christ, then your whole life will be literally covered with a blaze of the light of Christ. You can't help but be changed. And then he says, as when a lamp with its rays give you light. This is a beautiful word, word rays. Carries the idea of blazing light, like lightning gives you light. I was um, talking to a young man who was a barber. I brought my grandson into a barber shop. And um, we were in the barbershop, and if you know anything about African-American barbershops, I don't know if that's the way with you guys, y'all can tell me later, but in an African-American barbershop, just like a hair salon, there's a lot of talking that goes on while you're in there. And I walked in, and, and, and this one particular guy was talking to this other guy, and they were just down in the church, they were down in Christianity, and they were talking about how Christians, all they're, all, all they're about is money and power and and all of these things, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at my grandson, and I said, okay, God, this must be a gospel opportunity. <laughs> and so I began to say, oh, excuse me, excuse me, um, I don't know about what the reference, what you're talking about, but I began to talk about Jesus and, and how that he loved us and cared for us and died for us on the cross and how he paid the price for our sins and how he is the only way back to a right relationship with God. And the barber looked up at me. He says, hey, man, you see these, these, these uh, tattoos? He had tattoos. He, they had one large cross on there. And he says, you know what? I used to be where you were. He said, I used to believe that. But then I came to, to the light, the light of the Israel of God. You see, he was a part of this group of African Americans who believed that African-Americans is the true Israel, and they totally turn and, and reinterpret the Old Testament uh, in a way that it, uh, it's just not good Bible, Bible hermeneutics. And instead of getting an argument with him, I, I took what the passage he was looking at, and I said, you know what? In Christ, he fulfills all the Old Testament. He's the one. And the sad thing about that relationship, and I can hope to continue, continue on with him, is that he took the light that he heard, the light of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and it became darkness to him because he forsook it. The Bible calls us to understand the final sign of not only pointing to the greater prophet, the greater king, but the greater decision. The greater decision is this, beloved, and I close with this. Follow Jesus. He is the light. He is the only light. And when you follow him, you'll find God. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your truth, and we pray that you would give us, Holy Spirit, uh, eyes to see that only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light of the world. 
And Lord, even though we know that men uh, run away from the light many times because their deeds are evil, we believe that your spirit, as you did with us, can draw us back to the light. Father, would you do that today? Even now, if there's anyone here, would you draw them to the light? Would you not allow them to leave this place without coming to Jesus Christ? And Father, would you encourage your people to shine so that other men and women, boys and girls, could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help us to shine for you, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.